I didn't plan on this, but let's go to Revelation chapter 3. We won't get into all this uh, as far as teasing this out and talking about the different views of this. But I personally believe we're in the Laodicean age. And the message to the Laodicean church is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. This is Jesus giving a spiritual performance appraisal of his church. The only one who qualifies to appraise his church would be its head. I remember that when I was in the banking business and I was called upon to do performance appraisals, we didn't get peers to do it. I didn't get, <clears throat> I didn't solicit the help of somebody who was at a peer level of the person you're evaluating <clears throat> in order to uh, appraise their performance because it's not their responsibility to hold them accountable to how they perform, to reward them for good behavior, <clears throat> perhaps punish them for bad, and to craft a plan for their, for their, um, for their uh, career path. That was my responsibility as a supervisor. There's some of you in here who have those responsibilities. It's amazing how we will look at others uh, and their opinions of things to judge spiritual matters instead of looking to God's Word. We need to look at God's Word. God's the only one who gets a vote. God's the only one who gets a vote about the gospel. God's the only one who gets a vote about his nature and his revelation of it. He's the only one who dictates the methods and the um, ministry of his church because he's the head. You know, that's an assumption we make a lot of times in our circles that Christ is the head of the church. We say that flippantly like Christ is the head of the church. Everybody knows that. But I'm afraid all too often our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy have a big divide between the two. And what we say we believe and how we act is very distant from one another. We might say that Christ is said of the church, but as far as practical things are concerned, we got it handled. Thanks, but no thanks. You stay up in heaven, do your thing. We'll see you later. We've got a handle on this. We've got a grip on this. And this is what's happening in the Laodicean age. I didn't plan this at all. So let's just go through the scripture and see what the Lord has for us. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things say the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither hot, you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Member of our church recently, Brother Joe, said to me, the only thing you find in the middle of the road is yellow lines and roadkill. I was teaching this passage to my children one day and I asked them a question. I said, here's what the Lord is saying. Of the options that 
I have as I appraise you and, and, I, and I appraise you based on my word and the testimony of my word of the options I have of that appraisal that you're either hot, you're zealous for me, you're red hot, you're full of me, you're pursuing me, you're after me, you roast what you took in hunting. You know, you're taking the word of God and you're nourishing yourself and you're using it to nourish others. I said, on that journey, I, you're red hot. It was said of Jesus when he overturned the tables of the temple. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Psalm 69 he's quoting from. He said, I am so zealous. I am obsessed with the worship of Jehovah God. So much so. So much so that I count it nothing to die to purchase the right for you to do it. That's how high I am on worship. That's how I regard the glory of God. I went there for the glory of God. We mess with this. We're so sick. We're so humanistic in our perspectives that sometimes, and I'm not cutting anybody down, but sometimes we can say, well, you know, while he was on the cross, I was on his mind, and we make it so manward. Yes, the cross was for us. Yes, salvation is for us. But no, salvation is not about us. Salvation is about the glory of God. God gets great glory and He will great, get great glory on His trophy case of heaven when you and I are up there polished and shined and there we are. Regardless of our background, regardless of our rebellion and all the things that got us in the mess that we got in, that God sent His Son, atoned for our sin, made us holy and brought us into practical holiness with positional holiness in heaven and then strolls through the corridor of heaven in the trophy room and say, look what we purchased. Trophies of grace. The glory of God. Jesus said, I will glorify you in this act. John chapter 12. We make things, we, we make things, everything is so manward. Everything is so usward. We start with us and then shove up what we found to God. We're self-centered. That's the reason that the conflict was taking place in the Philippian church is because of self-centeredness. And Paul gave them the answer to it in the previous chapter. He said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to. Let go of the selfishness. Be like-minded with Christ. We all bleated to Him and it's all about Him then. And not about me and you. He said, You're red hot if you're zealous. And you're red hot for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for that. I celebrate that. I want churches that are red hot for me. If you're cold and indifferent, then you don't get it. If you're cold and indifferent, you don't get it. Have you ever presented the gospel with somebody and they say something like, well, hell will be a comfortable place for me because most of my friends will be there. And so therefore, I'll just be there with the rest of them. And since we're having a good time on this side of eternity, we'll just have a good time on the other side of eternity, except maybe it might be a little bit toasty. Do you think for one minute that a person who says something like that believes in the reality of hell? There is no way to trivialize it like that and to say, well, that's, hey, all shucks. If I wind up there, that's just unfortunate. The cold heart, the heart that is, just says, you know, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm fine like I am. 
You know, even if, let's hold out hope that maybe that what you say is right. Let's just say it's right. Well, maybe I'll take cancer one day and on my deathbed I'll repent and believe. But not right now because I got it under control. I'm steering. I like the direction. You know, sin is pleasurable for a season, it says. The Bible does. Let's, let's, let's don't, let's don't, let's don't uh, kid ourselves. If somebody says, I'm having a good time, don't cast doubt on that. They probably are for a season. For a season. For a season. So you got the red hot Christian, then you got somebody who's cold and indifferent, ain't got time for God. And then you got the man in the middle. And this is the man that I believe most occupies churches today. Let me say this to you. This is not a political statement whatsoever. Not whatsoever. So please, please, please don't take it as such. I believe the Bible teaches that God sets up rule and he takes it down. And that the next president of the United States is going to be who God appoints, not the voters. Let's don't go to spending ourselves and think that much of us. Does that mean we're not supposed to have a fatalistic view and not supposed to vote responsibly, consistent with our convictions? No, it doesn't mean that. But does it mean that we leave the results to God and fret not? Yes, it does mean that. But our spiritual condition is reflected in our politics. So let me tell you why. The people... Who will choose the next president of the United States are independents. And they have no ideological basis for making their decision. They're middle-of-the-road people. You're always going to get your base to vote for you. The Democratic candidate is going to get the liberals. He ain't got to worry about that. He'll make them mad. They'll get frustrated. They'll spit at him. They'll, they'll, they'll blog. They'll do stuff like that. But they're going to vote for him. And then the other candidate who leans more toward the conservative side is going to get the conservatives because they're certainly not going to sway toward the liberal. So neither one of those will decide the president. The reason we're in the mess that we're in is that middle-of-the-road people get to decide who's the president of the United States. People who have no principled stance about anything. It's just what satisfies me. And the reason that's true in America is because it's true in church. Whatever winds up happening at the White House began at the church house. It is a reflection of where we've gone and where we've drifted and our lack of convictions. For goodness sake, slap on a jersey. Believe something. Stand on something even if you're wrong. We've got to put on a jersey. We need to declare a team. We need to stake a claim. We need to stand firm and say, on this confession and on this rock, I am immovable. I'm not moving. I'm not moving because I've found the truth. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've come to know and believe that you're the ones who have the eternal life. Where else are we going to go? When I was talking about this with my children, I said, you know, let me ask you a question. Do you know why God, do you know why God is so frustrated and so sick and wants to vomit up middle-of-the-road Christians, professing Christians. You know why? Because they confuse everybody around them. That's why. You say this, but you live this. You say that, but you're over here. And you're bouncing around over here like this, but yet you say you're a Christian. And so therefore, I really don't know where the lines are drawn. Is that what Christian faith is all about? So middle-of-the-road people do nothing but confuse people. And Jesus can't stand that. That's the reason He moved me away from that pulpit. Is He didn't want His message to be confused with the junk that comes from there. 
the middle of the road people are self-serving. Their only allegiance is so far as it suits them and feeds their appetite. For goodness sake, that's bled into worship in the modern day church. We come into worship thinking we're worshiping when we're really asking everybody to satisfy me. Feed my appetite. Enable me. We're approaching worship in a way that enables the flesh to thrive. Church is about me. It's about me and what my appetites are. It's about, it's about the vote that I get to make about whether or not up or down or midway or whatever. And we have a scale. It's almost like a diving contest where everybody kind of sits in the pew and says after, you, after everybody dives and they hold up a, line, hold up a thing and, and give the score and we compute the score and say, well, this is okay. This is 7.7. And this last time we went to church over here, they were 9.2. And, and this is kind of how we approach it. You know why? Because we're in the middle. Realize it's not, it's not a self-serving proposition. Church is designed not to preserve you. Church is designed to kill you and me. These relationships that we stand firm in, they're designed to kill us. If I have somebody in my life that's giving me a hard time and I find them hard to love, if I leave... All I do is take my lovelessness with me. If I stay, then God uses the challenge to either break me or I get more stubborn. It's your pick. There's this false notion between this Laodicean church age that we live in that, that somehow or another you could mix the gospel with humanism. That you could take... You could take my selfishness and mix the cross with it and come up with a hybrid gospel that looks like the gospel when in reality it's no gospel at all. It's nothing but idolatry. You've heard me give this example before. But it fits with this narrative. Ozzy Osbourne is a, is a uh, messed up uh, hard rocker and has been for years. And I didn't watch the television show, but he used to have a television show and it was a reality show with uh, where they took a camera and followed his family. And of course, Ozzy Osbourne's family acts like you would expect his family to act. They got foul mouths. There's no limit to what they'll talk about. No limit to what they'll make fun of. No limit to how they trash talk. But I did catch an interview with her daughter once. Then she was asked, have you ever been tempted to rebel? She went, rebel. Rebel. Rebel against rebels? Rebel? What does that mean? You know, I, we live in rebellion. You know, I mean, we celebrate rebellion. My dad makes a living off rebellion. You know, she said, for me to rebel would be to become a nun. You know what hit me? She's better off. She's better off than being in a home of professing Christians who habitually don't act like it. Because she, at least she knows where the line's drawn. At least she knows that, yep, that is the clear alternative to what you're doing. Where do our children go if we tell them the truth? And we habitually neglect our relationship with Jesus Christ.
I can tell you this. My children are going to find it hard to appreciate and reverence God's word if I don't. It doesn't mean it's impossible. I can only give them a sin nature. That's all I can pass down to my children. I cannot birth my children again. I can give them the gospel, but I can't birth them again. They got all the junk that they got. It's my fault. Me and Adam. And I'm praying that all of them will be saved. And we're certainly doing everything we can to explain to them and try to model the gospel. But if the gospel has such little transformative power in my life, if it wills and it's resigned to such a small place in my life, why would I expect it to occupy a big part of theirs? If we sing, how great is our God. If we sing, oh Lord my God, an awesome wonder. And yet, throughout the week, we do little or anything to reflect that we trust Him. If we do little or anything to reflect a, some kind of uh, passion for His Word, if we do anything at all and we have opportunities to share the Gospel and we habitually, habitually neglect those opportunities, it's going to be hard to explain to them that the Gospel is so important. It's going to be hard to communicate to them that the Gospel is everything if it seems to occupy such a little part of who I am. It's going to be hard to, to um, communicate to them that the, God's call for holy living and a surrendered life if I continue to live unsurrendered. I'm not talking about going through the motions of Christian living. I'm talking about modeling in front of our children simply because it's who I am. That my life is, I've been crucified with Christ and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. That Jesus is not just a part of my life. That Jesus is my life. I'm counseling a couple right now who's outside this church who are going to get married and we're meeting with premarital counseling and we talked about this time and again. But I try to always remind them. I said, you know what, the world will cut a deal with you. And, it, and you'll probably, you, you might respond. I don't know. I hope you don't. And here's the deal they cut. This is the unwritten rule. Um, we're okay with you having a Jesus over here. But you just need to keep him there. You know, and then you've got all these divisions within our lives. We've got our social life. We've got our... Um, um, other other segments of our life and we got Jesus over here that's kind of the churchy stuff and the world says we're alright with you if you just leave him over here but you start dragging him in to these other areas and disciplines of your life and these other parts of your life then you and I are going to have a problem you and I are going to have a problem you know what I was listening to somebody preach on this text one time and he was uh uh, Joe Stoll used to be the president of Moody Bible Institute, and he said something that just struck me. He said, you know what, it, uh, I'd rather you slap me in the face because I was worth the effort than for you to completely ignore me. Because at least I got a rise out of you. You know, At least you acknowledged I was here. And he said, this is what the Lord is saying in this text. 
I'd rather you just completely turn away from me. And at and, and least we know where you are and you have an opportunity to repent and turn than for you to be in the middle and pretend like you know me and pretend like you serve me when you really don't and you've got a life that's inconsistent with who you are. Of those two options, I'd rather be that one. If you just, if you just, just turn your back on me, do that, because at least there's some response. But the apathy in the middle, the apathy in the, apathy in the middle makes me sick. Here's what the apathy can make you think. To make you think I, I'm rich, I'm, I'm sufficient, I'm fine, I'm wealthy. I don't have, I don't need anything. And all the while, your quote-unquote wealth has shielded you from a realization of your poverty. Is it the greatest question God could ever ask? The greatest question that God could ever ask, probably was the first question that's recorded in Scripture that God ever asked man. It's the first thing that God ever asked man and it's recorded in Scripture. You know what it was? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Because obviously, you don't know. And I'm going to answer that for you. And the best thing I can do is answer that for you. Because until you know where you are, I cannot lead you to where you need to be. No need for repentance. Just, you're okay. Everything's okay. Let's just, let's just pet the flesh. Let's just pet our, our professions that are puny and much smaller than the gospel itself. Let's accommodate them. Let's accommodate our appetites. Let's accommodate that. And let's slap Jesus' name to it. Let's, let's involve him. Because that way we can whitewash it and feel better about it. And all the while the Lord's telling, telling us you're spiritually impoverished and the only type of poverty that really is is spiritual poverty I tell you this it is time to slap on a jersey it's time to slap on a jersey you know the most uh, gut-wrenching part of yesterday was to me to first of all see that I had all these family members there and friends and people I hadn't seen in a long time and some people that I'm related to that I didn't know I was related to that I've never met. And you could tell that the majority of them, just the interaction with them, they're, they're, they're from the testimony of another believer in my family, says I, I, have, I cast out on the salvation of any of them. And she didn't mean that in a reckless way or a condemning way. It was a, it was a spirit-led way that I'm broken over this. And to, and to hear no gospel and no hope uh, offered uh, and no call to repentance, any of that, that's heartbreaking enough. But something surprising happened to me yesterday. I'm just go ahead and say it. And it's just, it's just true. But after we got through and, uh, and we were in the line to uh, eat, the place where you go get the tea, there was a member of the church there who was serving. And... Um, I was watching him, and because I know that this doesn't always dictate that, but I would suspect that this guy was probably one of those uh, homosexual leaders. And he was being kind, and he was, you know, I walked up to him, and he said, now this is the sweet tea, and this is the, you know, and he was trying to explain to me what my options were, and I'll get you this, and he was being so kind, and he was being very nice to us. And uh, 
And I just looked over there at this person who leads the church, and I got mad at her. I was already mad already, I think with the right kind of anger. And then I looked at him and had compassion for him. Because what her, what his leader is doing is what God hates. Because every single day at that church, they justify the wicked. And God hates that. God hates that. So their theology and their methodology comes along beside somebody like that, pats him on the back, and says, Man, you're okay. You're okay. God loves you. God loves you. And you're okay. You're so okay that we're going to make you a leader in this church. And we're going to set you up as being somebody, an example to follow. Because you're that okay. And that broke my heart watching that guy. That broke my heart. I'll tell you something. That was all done in the name of Jesus. That was all done in the name of the resurrection. That was all done in the name of the cross. That was all done in the name of all of that. Those, those symbols were there. Those symbols were there. But they have crafted out of the scriptures a God of their own that you don't find in the Bible. And here we are, slipping into this age to the point where we can't even recognize it anymore because we're so middle of the road. Let me ask this. Could we bow now before we leave here? We're going to leave here in just a moment. But could we bow right now and ask the Lord? Lord, where am I? Where am I? I'm just asking. Just asking. I'm not making, I'm not making judgments. I mean, it's not my job to judge any motive. It's, it's our job to judge actions but not motives. But I, and, and I'm asking, I'm going to ask the Lord the same thing to me. Where am I? And if we have options, and there are three of them, Lord, am I red hot? Am I cold? Or am I lukewarm? You know what the bad thing about lukewarmness is? The bad thing about lukewarmness is it's in yourself, it's hard to detect. You know why? Look at the scripture. It says, You say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy. I don't need anything. And you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So the level of blindness when you're in the middle of the road is immense. And what we've got to do is we've got to ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit founded upon His Word. Would we be honest enough, maybe even throughout the week, individually, and maybe even have a discussion with your family and say, are we hot? Are we cold? Or are we somewhere in the lukewarm zone? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that there is a scenario based on the God that you know, based on the God that you know, if you're saved here, if you've repented toward God and put faith in your, his, his dear son, do you believe that if you ask him that question, he's not going to answer it? He's going to answer it, Eddie Kelly. He's going to answer that question. He's going to give you clarity about that question if you're willing to ask him. Now, Ken's here, and I don't want to speak for Ken, but I'm going to speak for Ken because he won't get mad at me. And if he does, he'll conceal it. <laughs> but Ken, from this microphone and this pulpit, gave a testimony of having a drinking problem for years. 
And he said one of the most honest statements I've ever heard come out of anybody's mouth from this pulpit. And here's what he said. He said, you know why I never asked God to take it away from me? Because I knew he would. That's as honest as it gets. So, if you don't ask him, and we don't ask him to sift through and measure our lives by the word of God, that's where we are. It could be you're afraid of what you'll hear. Because when you hear something, you'll be accountable to it. Now, red hot living has got to be a lot better than being in the middle of the road. Got to be. Red hot living uh, is better than the middle of the road. It's better than being cold, but it's better in the middle too. But it will demand not to get saved, but because you are, it will demand your death and mine. It means the Lord's going to slay us. It means He's going to call us to stand firm when we'd rather wiggle out. He's going to cause us to endure and persevere when we'd rather cut and run. He's going to call us to risk our reputations and risk and certainly put on the chopping block our pride. It's going to cause us that. It's going to do all the things. And then, I wish I could find the lyric. Let's see. Uh, how firm a foundation. Did you see it a while ago? I was reading through that. The needle's right behind it. Matter of fact, it might be turned right there. It's turned right there. Okay. Listen to this. When through the fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fire. And the Bible goes out of its way. It's just ridiculous how the Bible goes out of its way to emphasize they were cast bound, cast bound, cast bound. It's just over and over and over in there. And you go, God, I, I'm not a scholar, but I think you're trying to say something. Cast bound, cast bound. And then when Jesus appears in the middle of the flame with them, the Bible makes it very clear they were what? They were loosed. Why? Because you, when you get in a flame designed by Jesus, the only thing that you stand to lose is that which binds you. Amen? So let him turn up the flame. He'll turn it up just right so it doesn't mess up the good stuff, but he's also got to make it hot enough to the bad stuff to get out. And he'll design that thing just exactly right. And he'll put it, people in your life that you find hard loving and hard forgiving and he'll do all of those things as part of that flame. And he's designing that flame because he wants all that junk to rise to the top so he can scrape it off and see his image inside you. And that's the grace of holy living and that's God's plan. Amen. He does love us and he does have a plan to make us like his son. We just don't like how he goes about doing it. I want to be a part of a red hot church. Whatever that means. I don't know what that means, but I'd like to find out. So we'll ask him. God, make me a red-hot man of God, and then I'll be a red-hot pastor. Make Dave red-hot. 
Burn us up. Put us out in the sun and make us red hot. And fill this church with red hot families and red hot dads and moms and individuals and single moms and single agains and singles and this and that and the children. Fill us with red hot believers so we can serve a Jesus who is worthy. Now, you ask him the question? Let's take the whole week to do it. Let's just take the whole week and, you know, y'all can do what you want to, but my challenge will be to this. And I'm going to do this. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I don't reckon. I, I'm not willing to do it myself. I hope I don't do that. But let's ask Jesus this week, Lord, scan my life. Scan my life and let me know if I'm hot, middle, or cold. And grant me the repentance to move me to hot if I'm anything other than that. Amen. And if you're cold, or if you're in the middle of the road and you intend to stay there, move to the cold category. Get over there. Don't try to get over here. If you want to stay where you are, go to cold. Because then you're better prepared to get to hot. Because if you stay in the middle, it's going to be hard to get there. Amen.